Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. podcast, we present the third of our special stories episodes. In this one, I will have a conversation with two Guidance Center direct service staff, Debbie Lambert and Saira Patino. Debbie has worked in our Compton Clinic for over 20 years as a mental health rehabilitation specialist, a clinician, and now as the supervisor of the agency's intensive care coordination services. Saira is a clinician in our Long Beach Intensive Services Program. She also serves on the Multidisciplinary Assessment Team, an innovative program where clinicians conduct highly comprehensive assessments of children recently placed in the foster care system, ensuring that services are enlisted to meet all their complex needs. Both Debbie and Saira serve the children and families facing the greatest struggles within the outpatient system of care. We will each talk about what drove us to choose a career in community mental health, what it means to us, and how we maintain our own self-care. So welcome, Saira and Debbie. I have the pleasure of knowing both of you as Guidance Center staff. Um, both of you, uh, but especially Deb, who I met when I first came to the Guidance Center 14 years ago. Deb, I still remember meeting you. Um, but, but for our listeners, both of you, would you please say a few words about yourself? Hi, I am Debbie Lambert. Like Trisha mentioned, I've been with the agency 20 years, and that is due to the leadership team just providing the Guidance Center with guidance and foresight to keep providing services for our community. So I just wanted to say that I've been um, so blessed and honored to be a mom, a coach, a, a, a rehab specialist, a clinician, a supervisor, all while working with TGC. And I am so privileged and honored to continue to grow as the agency has been growing to assist the community. Thanks, Deb. Hi, uh, my name is Saida Patino, and I have been with the Guidance Center. It will be two years in September. Um, I am a clinician, and up until recently, I was also um, taking on the role as a MAT assessor. And it has been an honor to be part of the Guidance Center team for the last almost two years. You know, our listeners uh, may not know what a MAT assessor is. So do you want to just touch on that? 
Sure. Um, so MAT, M-A-T, stands for Multidisciplinary Assessment Team. And so um, what that is, is I was part of a team that consisted of DCFS or the Department of Children and Family Services, um, their social worker, uh, the supervising social worker. And so usually there would be an assessment that was court ordered for a child who was recently detained by DCFS. And so usually these children have some needs that maybe were not being addressed while they were in the home with their parent. And so my role was to meet with um, the children who were detained, the bio parents, the um, foster parent or caregiver, um, and basically try and assess um, what the children's needs are and put some services in place to meet those needs. Excellent. Thank you. And I know that that can be hard work too, because it's drop everything and go do this right now because the child's just been detained. So, and this is a question for all of us, you know, all of these questions are, I'd really like us to just sort of chat about our career. So, um, Deb, let's start with you with this first one. What first inspired you to choose mental health as a career? Thank you for that question. It's an excellent one. And I'm just going to, you're not, I don't know if you can see, but I'm pointing to myself. It, uh, it relates to me and my past trauma in that I realized that I was a knucklehead of sorts. And there were people out there who cared and loved about me enough to confront me in a gingerly way about my ways and how I was kind of self-destructive and how I always had this uh, mean look as though I needed to attack the world before they attacked me. And because of that experience, it enlightened me that there's a lot of individuals out there like myself who've had past trauma that just kept surfacing and surfacing. And in order to deal with that is to confront it head on. And so I feel so blessed that those that love me, despite myself, to help me see that there are services, there's a way to let all this pain and hurt out. So I wanted to give back and be a service, just like those who are a service to me I had nothing to gain by helping me, but did. And because of that, I want to be able to give back as well, because we all deserve a second chance. I think that's a really great story. And it's a, a theme I think we hear a lot in our industry. And Sayura, how about you? What brought you to this this field? So it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, when I was about 10 years old, I had um, a best friend at the time. We would see like in cartoons or shows growing up, um, we would see you know, the therapist with their client laying on the couch and the therapist, yeah. you know, would usually have a notepad and be asking, you know, the, the patient, you know, how does that make you feel? And <laughs> so um, we had this idea to sort of reenact that for some reason, maybe out of boredom, you know how kids are. Um, and so I literally had her, I think, lay on the bench because we were at school. And um, it initially, it started off sort of just as playing pretend until eventually we actually did start talking about our feelings and 
So it ended up turning into this sort of like pseudo therapy session without us even realizing it until it was actually happening in real time. And so I think it was then that I realized, hey, I think I'm kind of good at this. Well, oh. <laughs> um, and so I think that was the moment when I realized, you know, I think maybe I should explore uh, mental health a little bit further. And so I did my research and, uh, you know, went through the schooling and here I am. I think that's the greatest story. I, I just have this vision of you sitting by the park bench and, you know, my story is probably closer to Deb's in lots of ways that, you know, I grew up with quite a lot of trauma in my family. Uh, we had a lot of resources financially. We were lucky in that regard. Um, and I grew up in a different country too. We were in Spain, but there was, there was quite a lot of trauma and I was a pretty oppositional teenager as a result of that. Um, you know, I still always did well in school, but, uh, just ran that city. Uh, I was living in Madrid at the time and, um, had a teacher finally sit me down, Mr. Tolan. He was my AP English, ah, AP English teacher. Yes. And he sat me down and he told me very specifically, he's like, you deserve a better future than the one you're creating for yourself. And he's like, high school's almost over. You'll get to go to college, hang in there. And if you hang in there, I'll help you get through. And I'll stay in touch with you when you're in college. And he, he encouraged me to go to a therapist, which I did do, and which I was able to do because I lived in this country with socialized medicine. It was, you know, easy access. I took a bus and two subways every Wednesday and went to therapy. I saw Dr. Colmenares for two years, and Mr. Tolan was true to his word, too. He kept in touch with me. Well, I was in a tiny school, so he did all through high school, but then the entirety of the time I was in undergrad, he wrote me, and this was pre-email. I'm old. Like, he wrote me those blue, like, uh, really thin uh, airmail stationery, and he wrote all the time, and we stayed in touch. And I just realized, you know, if I hadn't had that, I could easily have been some kid that ends up lost. You know, I was in L.A. by myself. And um, so I just decided I wanted to pay it forward. Um, I thought I was going to be a novelist. <laughs> but then when I got to school, I like this is I feel like this is my calling. This is really what. I want to do. Um, I want to help somebody the way I was helped. And, you know, I think much like Deb's story too, we had these people who didn't have to help us, right? But did and how powerful that is. But that does lead me to the next question. You know, private practice is an option. We could, all three of us, we're in community mental health. We're in, we serve the hardest clients in the toughest communities. The two of you in particular, you doing field-based work that you're going into client homes, you're walking through these neighborhoods. Like why community mental health? Oh, and I just need to jump in there and just Please say it's, it's about being boots on the ground uh, and being in and submerged in the community and in the home. But because to get an accurate reflection, 
And because sometimes if you're doing your own private practice and uh, Sarah, just to reflect, I just imagine that Snoopy commercial where uh, Lucy has it and it's a psychiatrist in, <laughs> and she's right there and there's Snoopy laying down. He's talking about Woodstock, I'm sure. But that's just interesting to have that vision. You know, so thanks for bringing me there. But being out in the community, seeing the environment where they go to school where their neighborhood is, gives you a really accurate reflection of what our clients and families are dealing with and to see if they're reliable informants and the perceptions of their environment, getting information maybe from a teacher, a coach, uh, uh, other family members, all taking that in gives us evidence because I was very good at hiding, so I thought, and I was called out on the carpet by family and friends about what was going on inside of me because I didn't think people could see my thought bubble, but my thought bubble was angry and mean because I wanted to hurt people as people had hurt me that was closest to me. And people saw that and they began to look at my environment and where I and how I was responding. So being out in the community health really gives us a picture of what's going on with our kiddos. And I think that's the best way to help. So I wanted to immerse myself in that. And then I began to realize when I looked at uh, my clients and caregivers, I was looking back at myself, being angry, disruptive, uh, doing things that weren't safe for myself, but just acting as if everything's okay, I'm fine. That was in the past, I'm here now doing things, but then I we've realized in community mental health, the past is anchored there, but certainly has its way of finding its way in our present day lives. How about you? I actually, I grew up um, in a small, predominantly Latino community, um, Santa Paula, oh, <laughs> in California. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I witnessed families, um, usually with small children, um, they had limited access to no access to valuable resources, um, sometimes because of their immigration status or their socioeconomic status. And so um, watching this in my community was really disheartening. Um, so once I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in the mental health field, I knew that I wanted to serve those who re resembled the people in the community where I grew up. Um, so I, I guess you could say I grew up in a tough community. Uh, so I've never been the type of person to shy away from a challenge, especially when I knew that I could help in some capacity. Um, and so being a woman of color, daughter of immigrant parents from Mexico and seeing those around me have challenges related to mental health, for me, it was just a, a no brainer to just give back. And I'm so honored to be doing this work and helping, helping those in need. No, I mean, my story is definitely different in, in that regard. Like I did not grow up in the kind of neighborhood that we serve. Um, I lived in a big house in Madrid. I had my own bedroom that I could lock, um, my own bathroom I could lock. I went to a private school, private international school that was small enough that the teacher could notice me because, you know, he didn't have 40 kids in his classroom. Um, I had 40 kids in my entire grade. 
so, you know, I had a lot of resources in that regard. So to me, community mental health, I've done nothing but community mental health my whole adult life now. I went straight from college to grad school to community mental health. And um, I don't think I'm good for anything else by this point, but it's, it's about equity and fairness and justice. Like I'm so mindful of the resources that I had when I needed help that um, I was so fortunate and lucky to have. And I'm going to have to give a shout out to my dad um, because he grew up really poor. Um, uh, Manuel Costales, uh, his name was different than the other names in his neighborhood. He slept on the couch in a one bedroom apartment where he grew up. Um, his parents were in the bedroom. His sister, uh, was also in the living room. Like, I think he slept on a couch until he was drafted into the Korean war and finally got a bed, but under, <laughs> not ideal circumstances. He remembers being hungry. So we were raised to always know how lucky we were and how hard he worked and to uh, be mindful that we didn't earn it and that we had an obligation to pay back. So, you know, when I thought about wanting to pay it forward, um, I, I just recognized I was blessed and I would like to give that same kind of support to families who wouldn't get the services if we weren't there. Like if the guidance center wasn't there, where would all our kids go, right? If we, if resources, like if we weren't there where they wouldn't get help. And that really means a lot to me. And I'm so aware too, increasingly, you know, over the years in this field, you realize how much of the mental health issue is, is just trauma of their neighborhoods, the trauma of poverty or food insecurity or housing insecurity. And wow, that's just not right. So to me, it feels like, um, I'm commit mental health is my calling, but the social justice element of community mental health is really, really important to me. I echo those sentiments right on, spot on. Thank you for sharing your story and being vulnerable. No, that's what we do, right? We yes. talk about our feelings. Exactly. <laughs> We're therapists. That's what we do, right? You know, one thing is we've done, I think this is like our 28th or 29th episode. Um, I've always said when people ask me, like, how do you do this work? Or, oh, you're so great to do this work. And I'm like, blah, blah. it's an honor to do this work. And I really feel that way. And one thing that has really struck me as we've interviewed other people is several of my peers, I've heard those exact same words from multiple people over and over again. No, this is an honor to do this work. And that really struck me. So I just want to throw it back to you guys, whether that sort of idea resonates with you at all. And if it does, then, then why? Wow. Uh, that's uh, such a loaded question. Uh, being an immigrant uh, myself, 
and just giving you a little an honor for my mom. We've all had a significant other in our family that rooted us and grounded us and gave us the resiliency to be able to persevere where we are now and to, and do, the, to do the work that we're doing. And a shout out to my mom, who was from Belize, formerly known as British Honduras in Central America. I didn't know that, Deb. Yes, she came to this country in 1964. That would be me. Wow. And had me. So she was pregnant when she crossed the border. And at that time, all you needed to show was that you were um, going to spend money in the U.S. and that you came over. And so my mom was 16, had me, and you know that's young, and kept me. And so that's a great story in itself because I could be searching for her right now, but she persevered. She got her teaching credential. She was a maid. Wow. And so I have uh, pictures of me in a household of a, a Caucasian rich family where she was a maid and was raising me until she met my father, whose last name I now have, Lambert. And he raised me as his own. So there's a lot of cultural diversity there. The one thing that I struggled with was that I'm not Spanish speaking because my father, who was a military and African-American, said, she's going to learn English and that's it. You're in this country now. So I only learned English. And um, as of course, that's regrettable now, but I'm learning more by little. But having had that background and seeing my mom as an immigrant persevere, become a citizen, she was a bilingual teacher when that first started way back when in our educational system in Los Angeles County. But watching her persevere and against all odds and systems, that was another way that I wanted to give back and honoring my mom and all of those before her to share about the resources, about those who are underserved and underdeserving seemingly by the community, to stretch out, stretch out our arms for everybody, LGBT community, which I'm a part of, being a mom, you know, a coach, an immigrant, uh, having had trauma from the past, all these things, I want everyone to be able to uh, be have availability, access to resources, mental health resources, things that are out there. So we can make a difference because we're all equal. We're all a part of this tapestry of life and to be able to share with those who are still struggling, it is an honor to be a part of something bigger such as TGC and leadership that continues to grow as our community grows. Deb, it strikes me too, like what, a brave thing your mom did um, coming to a new country to give you, I mean, what a gift to you. Like clearly she was wanting to create a, a life for the baby in her belly, right? Like what a, what a gift and how brave she must've been to do that at 16, right? Yes, ma'am. How about you, Sayra? It's an honor and a privilege um, to have access to someone's most intimate side. We're talking about their thoughts, their feelings, and what's in their heart. And so this isn't something to take lightly as far as the role of being a therapist, being a clinician. Um, unfortunately, most of the clients that I have had the honor to work with have experienced some sort of traumatic event. And so to have someone open up to me about their trauma history is a huge deal. And even just saying huge deal, that it's is massive. It's yeah. massive. It's an understatement, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, me, a stranger 
essentially to them, um, gets to be their diary in a sense. Um, and so they share the most intimate things with me. And so I really can't find any other way to word it other than it is an honor and a privilege to be sort of that container for them. Um, actually, I, I just had an adult client um, who I met with, I think for the second time uh, last week, she disclosed to me that um, when she was a young child, she was molested by a relative, um, which again, in our line of work, it's something that therapists hear often, but it really, yeah. it really resonated with me because um, she told me at the very end, you know, through wiping her tears, she said, you know, this is the, you're the first person I've ever said this to. I, I haven't trusted anybody, not even my own sisters to be able to confide in them and tell them this um, out of fear that maybe they might tell her aunt and it would get back to her cousin. And also um, just watching her face um, as she was talking about this, uh, she said, you know, this is the first time I'm saying it to you, but also I'm saying it out loud. Um, and that was, it was heavy <laughs> to say the least. It was, it of was course. a heavy uh, session. So, you know, I was immediately humbled and allowed her the time and the space to be able to safely process uh, while also reminding her that this is a safe place for her to do that. So I don't take this role as a clinician lightly because it comes with a lot of responsibility. And, well, you know, we're, we're talking about taking a deep dive into someone's life and that should always be taken seriously and approached in, in a sensitive manner. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so right with you. I mean, to me, I feel like, you know, when I don't get to see clients anymore, much to my dismay, I always say, well, I'm going to take a client, but realistically, I don't have time with my current role. But when I did, I saw children who were sexually abused and or kidnapped. So huge levels of trauma. And that was the entirety of my caseload. And, you know, these little people would come in and sometimes so little and life had not in any way taught them that adults should be trusted. In fact, the opposite from their experiences, yet somehow they came in and told me their stories and shared their feelings and shared their pain with me. And how could that be anything but an honor and humbling that they found a way despite everything, to still trust me. I mean, that's such a gift Absolutely, that they give me that trust. Like I think of this little girl, I'll never forget her. And it was probably, God, 25 years ago that I saw her, this little seven-year-old girl. And she came in with her mom and it was the worst case of domestic violence I'd ever seen with this mom. I mean, her face was partially disfigured. She was missing her teeth. It was just horrible domestic violence. And she never could quite bring herself to leave him until she came home one day and caught him hurting their child. Um, so she did leave him for her child and they came to me, but they were so timid. And I worked with both of them and my sessions alone with the little girl, she'd come in and she would sit under my desk actually. 
And for months on end, she would sit under my desk and I'd sit on the floor next to my desk and I'd put paper there and crayons and her little hand would come out and she would just draw things and I'd reflect back to her. But it was months under my desk. And then one day she came in and I had the paper there for her by the desk, but she sat down next to me instead and she leaned up enough that like our arms were touching And still, all these years later, it makes me want to cry. I still get goosebumps, like what it felt like that, oh, I I trust you now. And she did. She leaned her arms were just touching and she didn't need to go under the desk anymore. And how can that be anything but a gift that that little girl gave me, right? Like, I trust you and I'm going to share my story with you. And we get to do that all the time. Oh my gosh, you got my heart leaping out of my chest. (laughs) And then that's because now I get why you initiated that unaccompanied minor program that we're involved in, TGC, and the trauma-informed that Nathan started, uh, the programs that reach out to our community. That little person underneath your desk triggered my memory how I would go underneath a desk to keep safe. That was a safe space that you allowed her to have. And oh, how important that was. As we know in our business, it just takes one, and I shouldn't even say just, one individual to care, to love, to extend themselves, to hear the, the stories and to empathize and just sit with them until these individuals can come out and tell their stories as we have shared our stories. And that power of one is so pivotal in how you've collected us all as the power of one, Trisha, and I'm speaking to your leadership to create a safe space under the umbrella of the Guidance Center. And I'm just so honored to be a part of that process that is uh, absolutely fantastic that we get to do this work and be in fact we're game changers for people's mental health so they can go on and share to others and it keeps branching and rippling out so we can heal as a community right I mean that's exactly right too that I don't think we should forget is that we get to watch these kids get better don't we we get to be on the journey. We don't just hear the bad stuff. We get to watch them get better and celebrate their successes. And um, and then when they graduate from treatment, like, oh, my gosh, we get to be a part of the whole process. And that's incredible, I think. I mean, we don't just hear the bad stuff. But, you know, we've talked a lot about trauma here. So um, I'm curious for both of you. And Sarah, I'll start with you this time. How do you, we talk a lot about self-care because this is difficult work, but how do you take care of yourself when you're doing this work? Like after that session with that mom, you share, what do you do when you go home so you're okay? I cry. (laughs) (laughs) I love being honest. Um, Yes. I mean, if I'm going to be 100% honest, I, I, I cry. I think, um, I've. I think I identified early on in life that I'm most definitely an empath, which is sort of a double-edged sword, right? Um, Because I feel my client's pain almost as if it were my own. And so obviously that's going to take a toll eventually. And uh, in our field, you know, burnout is is really high. So um, I am guilty of not implementing self-care as often as I should. I think um, a lot of us 
say that to our clients, right? Um, hey, you know, do some self-care, go for a walk, um, take a breath. Um, and so we're guilty of not doing that for our ourselves. Um, but I made a promise to myself that I would be better about it this year. Hmm. <laughs> and you know we're in July already. Right? I know, I know, but it, it's still this year, so it still counts. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> um, so someone gave me a piece of advice about ten years ago that I still remember to this day. And it was that whenever she would get back in her car after having a difficult session and listening to all of these things that were just traumatic, um, she would pull out her driver's license and say, hmm. my name is so-and-so. I live at this address. This is me. And I'm here in this car by myself. And I'm going to leave this where it is now. And I'm going to go home and take care of myself, take care of my family and all of that. And so um, that has stuck with me. And so I find myself sort of using that technique whenever I have a very emotionally charged um, session. But um, as far as like specifics, I, I recently joined the gym. So <laughs> I get that energy out of there. Um, by sometimes, you know, punching something because sometimes you just got to punch something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just that. And obviously, it's really super, super important to have your own support system. Um, although some of my friends are LMFTs, LCSWs, and are in the mental health field. So we can't help but like talk shop whenever we right. get together. And then we kind of have to say, oh, nope, no more. We're going to, you know, just hang out and not talk about work. So. It's super important um, to to implement self-care. So I think I've gotten better at being um, self-aware and recognizing like, okay, I'm getting to that point where, you know, it's just not healthy and it's getting pretty toxic. I like that driver's license technique is interesting, like how grounding yes. and a reminder that that's someone else's story, not her story, and she could leave it there. And that, that, that was fascinating. I've never heard that. Deb, what do you do? Oh my goodness. Um, I, you know, we are what we repeatedly do and we are role models and individuals are watching us all the time, our families, uh, people in the community. So I had to make a daily commitment. I, I practice yoga every morning. I have that at least 10 minutes. I do five minutes of positive affirmations in order to ground myself for the day. I also make sure that I, well, I, I got into sports for, for a reason and that was to be able to uh, let go of all that trauma and uh, where I can get away at fouling somebody and it'd be okay, hmm. <laughs> it was justifiable, <laughs> right? It's, a, it's acceptable um, harm to another person. Kind of <laughs> right? like the hitting, but. Yes, the hitting <laughs> approach, correct. So uh, that was a self-disclosure there. And uh, I walk, <laughs> I do evening walks. I also have date night every Friday with my, um, my wife. We go out on date night as one way to connect because sometimes we get out of sync with our own profession and we forget we do have family members in the family. So I reconnect, you know, at the end of the week. I also make sure I get my nails done. That's mm. self-care. I have uh, monthly massages that I do as well. And good for you. Yes, I really try to uh, implement these. I share 
And I feel with the team that I supervise that we need to, to walk the walk as well. And then, you know, because I say, if I can't do it to myself, I've got to do it for others because I have to, I want to lead. I want to show by example, and it's good for me as well. And so those are some things that I do for self-care. And I do it on a daily because I don't want to wait to exhale at the end of the week or the end of the month, or now I can enjoy my life, right? Because I'm not living in the present. And we try to show that to our, our caregivers and our clients because we, we live in the moment and some of their moments are so traumatic. And so to be able to, to show them the deep breathing, yeah, Miss Debbie, we, let's practice our deep breathing together because I'm doing it. So I, I want to be able to show that and be an example to myself and others. It's so, you know, like um, Sarah had mentioned that it's important super important that we show how to take care of ourselves because then we can show how to take care of others because we've done self-nourishment. I'm such a hypocrite in that regard because I'm always talking about do self-care, do self-care. And I, I work in, I'm a work in progress. I'm still a work in progress. And I'm better at the, like I run too much or like I'll go run really hard or if it's a particularly bad time or bad story. I like to swim. Um, cause then I just focus on my bubbles and you know, you can't talk like I, I can shut everything out when I'm swimming because literally I can't hear you. My head is underwater. Um, but what I'm trying to do in more recent years is instead of sort of the fast, like run it out, swim it out to do more of the mindfulness that we know is so important to if I am running or walking to notice the sun on my arms or feel the breeze or listen for the birds and try to be really mindful and present. And I've started doing a gratitude journal in the morning uh, where I wake up and write things that I'm grateful for that day. Um, I'm not, and I've been trying to meditate in the morning and I'm really bad at it, but I'm going to remember, you know, I was really bad when I started running too. Some might say I'm still really bad, but you get better, right? So I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, so I am trying to practice meditation every morning too, as part of my self-care, but realistically what, like after particularly bad days or stories, running it out is my immediate or swimming it out. That's my immediate go-to. Um, and I'm working on the other parts. Um, you know, last thing, every single episode, I end them all on a, uh, note of hope. Um, so I'll throw this out. You know, we do this really hard work. I'd like your thoughts on what are the bright sides? What gives you specifically the hope to continue on and continue to do this work? Deb, I'll throw it to you first. Oh, okay, thank you. What gives me hope is that the, the younger generation gives me hope. On my team, I do have young individuals um, that I'm easily twice their age, but I'm continuing learning from their processing because it's a generational uh, situation because uh, being a baby boomer, things were told to us and we did them. We didn't ask questions. We did what we told and we minded our place. And with the younger generation, I like the idea of their questioning because they're seeking wisdom. And that gives me hope 
the human condition because we are all a part of the humankind, right? Be kind, be patient. And to be able to share that through our work, the empathy, the listening to stories are, is resonating with others. And in touching their lives, they in turn touch other people's lives. So that gives me hope within the inner generation that we have at uh, TGC and in our community that's going to continue just to resonate and ripple throughout a community. And I, I have a lot of hope. And then the, the continued work that we're going to be doing. After this, we're going to continue to work to see our clients, to network with people, uh, to provide resources, because we're not giving up. We're, you know, TGC always finds a way. And so we'll continue to reach out to other agencies and just branch ourselves out in hopes of reaching that one individual who thought they were lost. Mm. That was really beautiful, Deb. Sarah, how about you? Oh, that's a tough act to follow. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for me, it's just seeing my clients transform um, I have a client who I'm thinking of, um, in particular, and he's been with me for a year and a half, almost the entire time that I've been with TGC and watching him transform going from this suicidal, isolated, depressed young man, um, and going from that to just slowly opening up using his coping skills, um, going out more, increasing his self-esteem, socializing, um, managing his social anxiety, which is something that I, I see a lot, especially with the teens that I work with. Sure. And, um, <laughs> you know, now he is such a social butterfly. I can't get him to be quiet in session. <laughs> um, and he's doing so well that um, he's actually started to do this thing uh, where he turns it around on me and he's like, Saida, how are you doing? Why don't we do a check-in with you? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about this? And I'm like, hey, that's my job. <laughs> that's my that's line. so cute. You know, and... Um, it's just been just amazing. I mean, I really, I'm at a loss for words because I remind him all the time, like, you know, you have come so far um, from being, you know, that really sad young, young kid. And now, you know, he um, recently turned 14. And so when uh, I was, I started working with him, I think he was like about 12 so I saw him transition from the tween to the teens. Mm -hmm. um, he'll be starting high school and he's so excited for that. And he has so many friends and, um, you know, I, we actually will be terminating, um, meaning, you know, he successfully met his therapy right. goals right. Um, in two weeks. And wow. Yeah. I mean, just. I, I, of course, you know, I can't help but get a little attached to my clients, right? They share, sure. again, they share so much about themselves and I can't help but become, you know, emotionally invested in their journey with them. And so um, it was kind of funny because when we were talking about, um, you know, our last session, he was like, you know, I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for you. And 
I was just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, it brought tears to my eyes and I was like, this is it. Like, this is, this is why, like, I do this work and it's such a, you know, I'm just going to go back to say, you know, it's, it's, it's such an honor. And, um, just knowing that I've affected, you know, my clients' lives in a positive way and they're thriving now just gives me it fills me with so much joy and it's a beautiful thing. And I'm just so happy and blessed to be doing the work that I do. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I share both of your sentiments. It's, you know, you hear all these stories, but I actually think I'm oddly one of the more optimistic people in the world because you can see how resilient people are and how with the right supports, how remarkably resilient and brave kids can be. And, you know, to get to be on that journey with people, it, it does make me so hopeful. And I have to say, since, you know, I don't get to see clients anymore, a lot of my work's around policy change that hopefully helps our clients' lives. Staff, our staff inspire me and you guys give me hope. Um, because I see your faces and the commitment you have to the clients and the love you have for the clients. And that gives me hope as well. And you guys all just can, I, that's where I get my inspiration now. It's, it's from, from all of you guys. And I just hope that, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of my life, I can think, oh, I did my part to ideally make the world a kinder place, right? If we can say that, well... Wow, that's a good, that's a good note to end on, right? Yes, amen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I've loved this conversation. I've really loved getting to know both of you better in this way. And I, I thank you both for your just incredible vulnerability and sharing your story with us today. And I can safely say you're an inspiration to all of us. And I have no doubt whatsoever you're going to continue to accomplish great things in your work. And so you have my gratitude, the both of you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Tricia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by the Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Tricia Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.